Amen. Well, if you uh, would turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 1, and I'm going to read this evening from verse 11 down to 24. Uh, If you haven't got uh, a Bible, there are some at the back. It would be helpful to have a Bible to follow along with what we are doing here. Uh, Everything I say uh, will come from uh, this passage in Galatians 1. Uh, So the Bible's at the back, but I'm going to read uh, Galatians 1. Uh, verses 11 down to verse 24. So Paul writes, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing to you is no lie. Then I went from Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. This is God's word. And I've called this uh, message the, uh, the powerful proof of conversion. Now in 1917, uh, two young cousins, Elsie Wright and Francis Griffith, played with a camera in Cottingley near Bradford. And they shot a series of garden photos with fairies in them. Elsie's mother was the first to believe in the authenticity of these photographs. And she wasn't the last. The images were declared genuine by experts. And the Cottingley fairies fast became recognized all over the world. I mean, they, they just look so, so real, don't they? And for many years, people believed that these pictures were authentic. But in the 1980s, so you know, 60 years later, the cousins confessed to their trickery. The fairies were drawings by Elsie, and they were secured in the ground by hat pins. But they still claimed that one of the photos really was real. 
But after then, of course, who would believe them? Now, we see this kind of hoax uh, often, don't we? Not pictures of fairies, but hoaxes happen all the time. Uh, Another famous one in our nation is the the Piltdown Man. Uh, This was a supposed skeleton of a missing evolutionary link between apes and humans. And it was big news at the time. It was found in 1912. uh, In the, the 1910s, that decade seemed to be a you know, a a, a fashion for these things. But in 1953, this skeleton was found to be a forgery. The man who found the remains was the man who had buried the remains. Hoaxes. In the churches in Galatia, Paul is being presented by false teachers as a hoax. They're saying Paul is like the photographers of these fairies. Or the barriers of the Piltdown man. And they're saying, you can't believe anything really Paul has to say. Now earlier in chapter 1, we've seen that Paul is astonished that these churches are turning to a different gospel that's no gospel at all. And they're being led astray by, he says, some people. And these people are distorting the message and they're disparaging the messenger. And in Galatians chapter 1, verse 11, to the end of chapter 2, Paul defends himself as the messenger. He is saying, I am not a hoax. I haven't made this gospel up. This is the true gospel. And then after chapter 2, Paul then begins to defend the message itself. But the question Paul seeks to answer from here until the end of chapter 2 is this. Can we trust Paul? Can we trust him? And that is a vital question for us today. If we can't trust Paul, then we cannot trust the message that Paul brings. And his message is the gospel, that God has come into our world, he has died for our sins, he has risen from the dead, he has rescued us from this present evil age. If Paul is a hoax, we can't believe that message and the hope of the gospel is no hope at all. If we don't believe in Paul, in what he is saying, then we're not going to believe the teaching that he gives in the New Testament. Paul wrote most of the New Testament. The major doctrines that Christians believe were articulated by Paul the Apostle. If he's a hoax, we can't believe they're true. The way that we live as Christians is outlined So clearly, so often by Paul, if he's a hoax, we're not going to live as he says we should live. This is vitally important that we can trust Paul. And so Paul, in order to help us trust him, explains his history, how he came to know Jesus and how he came to preach the gospel. And it's important because Christianity is a historic faith. It is based on historic realities. I have not put my faith, you have not put your faith in some kind of fairy story. We put our faith in what has happened in history, that Jesus came in history. He was a real man who lived a real sinless life, who died a real death, and who had a real resurrection bodily from the dead. Paul the Apostle was saved in history. He was a a murderer 
we're going to see, in history and was radically converted and in history proclaimed the gospel and wrote these letters and they are true. If we can't trust this, we might as well pack up and live uh, completely different kinds of lives. But we can trust the gospels. The gospel is true. And so what I want you to see this, this evening is that we can trust Paul and we can trust his gospel. And so Paul sets up this section in verse, verses 11 and 12 with a proposition. The gospel is not of human origin, but of divine revelation. He begins in verse 11 with these words, I want you to know, brothers and sisters. This is the language of the court. Paul wants to be clear. He's making a case. I want you to know. But it's the language of the court, but also the language of love. He's writing to his brothers and sisters. And that's important to know because earlier on, Paul is saying, I can't believe what you guys are doing. I can't believe that you are going to a different gospel. I'm astonished at what you're doing. But here he's saying, you're my brothers and sisters. This is a message of love calling us back to the true gospel. He's a member of the family, seeing his family member making a disastrous error and saying, don't do this. And Paul's major point is that he wants them to know the divine origin of the gospel. Now he's accused of making his gospel up, but notice Paul has two parts in his proposition. First of all, it's not of human origin. And secondly, he received it by divine revelation from Jesus Christ himself. So first of all, notice what it says in verse 11. The gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Human origin means it did not begin in the mind of a man. Neither was Paul's gospel given to him by a human being. He wasn't even, in his case, taught it by anybody. Now, it's an important kind of side note here. Paul is not saying here that we can't hear the gospel from other people. Otherwise, what, what is the point of me even being here, right? If, if, if you're not going to listen to what I'm saying. But, the, but what Paul is saying is that him, in his unique situation as an apostle of Jesus Christ, did not receive it from a man. He received it from Jesus Christ himself. The main means God uses to proclaim the gospel today is preaching. But even when we're saved and grow through preaching, the message itself, isn't it? It's not from the preacher, it's from the Bible. The gospel originates with God. What I'm saying to you tonight is not my own thoughts. You haven't come here to, to what does Steve think about this? You've come to hear the gospel. But the reason why it's important that Paul did not receive it or be taught it from any human being was because he was an apostle who was laying the foundations of the teaching of the Christian faith. He was writing God's word. I'm proclaiming it, not writing it or, or, or creating it. This is not something that is true of anybody else. So I'm not calling you tonight to trust in my words. I'm calling you to trust in what Paul says because Paul is writing God's words. That, does that make sense? And so it's important that Paul can show that what he is saying is from God. And that's the second part of his proposition. I received it 
he says here in verse 11, by revelation from Jesus Christ. Paul's gospel is straight, if you like, from the lips of Jesus himself. Now, Paul was a, a true apostle because he, he saw Jesus and was shown the gospel by Jesus. And here's what makes Christianity unique. All other religions, philosophies, ways of life have a human origin of some sort. Somebody made them up. Now, some may claim divine origin, but there's no evidence of it. Christianity is different. Our God came among us and lived in history. And Paul the Apostle has evidence of the divine origin of, the gospel, of, his, of, what, of how he was converted, which we'll see. And that's important because if we're going to stake our lives on something, we'd better be sure it's true, right? The gospel is true. You can stake your life on it. God has revealed himself in history in the person of Jesus and the apostles, Paul included, has passed this revelation on to us. And Paul here is making this claim and he's going to go on to show the evidence. So we will see that Paul is right to say the gospel is not of human origin or invention. It is from, from God. So that's his proposition. What's his proof? Well, that's really the rest of chapter 1 and chapter 2. And Paul is going to give us a number of proofs. Here's how we can know that the gospel is not of human origin, but divine revelation. And the first proof tonight is the proof of his conversion. Only God could have saved Paul. So proof one is the experience of Paul's conversion. Look at verse 13. He begins with the word for. So here's an explanation as to why the proposition is true. Paul says for, and then he goes on to explain what life was like before his conversion. Now the church in Galatia has probably heard this testimony from Paul's lips. He says, you've heard about this. Paul's testimony was famous. They've heard of his previous way of life in Judaism. Paul was a, a Jewish man who followed the Jewish law. It was his, he said, way of life. He was no ordinary Jew. His way of life was the way of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the, 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 the strictest Jewish sect. They tried to follow every jot and tittle of the law and the traditions of the elders, which is all summarized in the Talmud. They, they tried to follow all of it. They took it all deadly seriously. They wanted to be seen to be following it by everybody else. Paul took this mightily seriously. And, he, and as a Pharisee, he would have wanted others to join his, his Jewish way of life. For Paul, his way was the only way to be right with God. He was passionate about his Jewish way of life. And he was so passionate, we read, he hated the church with a passion. Note what he says uh, in verse 13. I, how, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. The, the only way I can explain what, what Paul was saying here in terms of the, that word intensely persecuted was that if Paul was alive today, he would be on the MI5 or MI6 watch lists. He would be the kind of religious terrorist that would take bombs into churches and blow them up. That was Paul. He was a fanatic, zealous, religious terrorist. 
And we know that's true because he would go and murder Christians in churches, wouldn't he? It was, it was, that, that was his life. And in verse 14, as well as, as being a, a terrorist, Paul was on his way up in this Jewish society. Uh, in verse 14, he describes himself as advancing beyond his own age. In other words, he was a kind of a prodigy in the Jewish world. He was on his way to being the, the a chief leader among the Jewish people. And finally, we read in verse 14, he was extremely zealous for the traditions of his fathers. In other words, he just loved the Jewish way of life. You couldn't get more zealous than Paul. He was more zealous than a zealot. You couldn't get, get more than this. He was not going to be educated out of it. He was not going to be debated away from it. He was not going to be manipulated. And if anyone tried to educate, debate or manipulate him, he would probably kill them. Paul's point here is this. Only a divine intervention in his life could make Saul of Tarsus a Christian. You see? You know his previous way of life. How else could he be saved? I mean, would you go witness to him? And a divine intervention is exactly what we see happening. In verse 15, notice the change. But when God. But when God. And Paul often uses those kind of phrases, doesn't he? This was, was me, but God intervened in my life. And everything changed. And interestingly, in verses 13 and 14, Paul uses the first person pronoun I. So... Uh, you have heard of my previous way of life. I persecuted the church. I was advancing in Judaism. I was zealous. I was this. I was that. But then in verse 15, 15 everything changes. But when God, and then he says what God did in his life. God, did, God chose me. God called me. God commissioned me. This is God, 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 God who has saved me from my sins. You see? And in verse 15, Paul goes to give his testimony of the work of God in his life. And there are three parts, and I was debating whether just to do these three parts as a, a sermon on its own. I might still do that some, at some point, because there are three parts to his conversion here. He is chosen, he is called, and he is commissioned, and it is a work of God alone in his life. And it's the same for all of us. That's what that sermon would have been. Okay? So first of all, God is, is chosen. So God, Paul said, read it in verse 15, set me apart from my mother's womb. So before Paul was even born, God had selected him to be a follower of Jesus. Paul thought he was in control of his life. Paul thought... His rebellion against, uh, his, his persecution of the church was, was serving God. He thought that he was in control of all of that, but God, before he, Paul was even born, before Paul even knew it, God had chosen him for salvation and to be a proclaimer of salvation to others. This is similar kind of language to what God says to his prophets in the Old Testament. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5 before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Isaiah 49 verse 1, before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. And for us as well as Christians, we are 
chosen by God for salvation and service in his kingdom before we were born. In fact, Ephesians 1, Paul says, it was before the foundations of the earth we are chosen in him. You are not saved by anything other than the divine intervention of God in your life because he has chosen you for salvation. And that's a comfort for us, isn't it? That God wants you in his family. He didn't wait for you to be good enough. I mean, look at Paul for goodness sake. It's like he waited for him to be at his worst. But he wanted Paul. He chose Paul. He wants you. He chose you, Christian. There are no family members that God is really irritated at having in his family. He really wants you there. You're chosen. Secondly, notice he is called. So he was chosen from the womb, but he wasn't called in the womb. He was called later on, on the road to Damascus. That word for call means there was a specific naming of a person. So he calls him by name. God called Paul to be a follower of Jesus. And it was Jesus himself who called him on the road to Damascus. He uses his name, doesn't he? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul was intent on destroying the church, but Jesus showed up and called him by name. And notice Paul says he's called by his grace. Paul was not called for any reason. And that's why his testimony is so wonderful for us, because you look at the life of Paul before he was converted, and you realize, well, it can only be grace, can't it? Looking at Paul's pre-conversion life, he's the last person you would expect God to call. You may expect God to judge him. You may expect God to meet him on the road to Damascus and put him to death before he kills any more Christians. But no, he meets him on the road to Damascus. He calls him by name, by his grace. And all of us are called to be part of God's family by his grace. When you accept Jesus Christ as your savior, you accept the call of the gospel. There is no reason for you receiving that call except God's being gracious to you in in giving the call and in working in your heart so that you accept the call. So he's chosen, he's called, and thirdly, he's commissioned. Notice what Paul says in verse uh, 16. He called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me. What does that mean? It means that Jesus was shown to him And Jesus, by the Spirit, came to live in him so that Paul could show others Jesus. Notice why Paul was saved, so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Paul was chosen, he was called, and he was commissioned to be a preacher of the gospel to the Gentiles. And brothers and sisters, that's our testimony too. We're chosen before we're even born, We're called by his grace and we are commissioned to serve in his kingdom. And and it's a work of God, isn't it? And for Paul, that commission was to preach Jesus among the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people. And there's a sense in which all of us are called to proclaim Christ to those whom we come across. And if I had more time and I did this as a separate sermon, we could talk about all sorts of ways we could serve in God's kingdom, which we're called to do. But the point, the big point Paul was making here is only God could do this work in him. You see, 
Only God. And do you realize only God can do that work in you? You may not be a fanatical religious terrorist. I certainly hope not tonight. But before conversion, all of us are blind, ignorant, sinful people who without the Spirit opening our eyes would continue on our our rebellion to God all the way to hell. But God intervened. And that's the gospel, isn't it? Uh, Just another example of this, Peter, another apostle, uh, he recognized who Jesus was at Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus told Peter how it was that Peter recognized him. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Now, God saves us by revealing himself to us. It's all a work of God. That's Peter's way of saying what Paul does. It's not by human origin, but by divine intervention. Well, Paul is at pains to point out that this was a work of God at the end of verse 16, when he explains how when he became a believer... He did not consult any human being. Now, uh, he's not saying that, as I've said before, because we shouldn't speak to other Christians when we're converted. That would be a stupid application. Remember, the point here is that Paul is saying, as as an apostle, he cannot be accused of receiving the gospel from a person, but from God. So at the end of verse 16, he says, My immediate response when I was saved was not, uh, not to go... Uh, to consult any human being. Now, when, if, you, if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, and during the course of this sermon, uh, you become a Christian, I encourage you to speak to someone about that. <laughs> Paul's point here is that he didn't because there's no way he could be accused of receiving the gospel from anyone else. Neither, Paul says, did he go to Jerusalem to meet other apostles And that's important because one of the accusations that was leveled against Paul was that he was subordinate to the Jerusalem apostles and preached a different gospel to them. Here he's saying, when I was converted, I didn't even meet an apostle. Instead, he goes to Arabia and then Damascus, a place where there were no apostles. Now, we don't know what he did in Arabia. He probably preached the gospel there. In Damascus... This is really funny. I think it's funny. But he goes to Damascus, and he originally was going there to murder the Christians, and he shows up in church and praises God. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, crazy, isn't it, to think that I went to Damascus, but it wasn't to murder anyone. This time, I just just want to go to church. But what he did not do, his big point here, is he did not meet with the apostles at the beginning of his Christian life. Paul's gospel was given to him by God alone, not by any human being. Now, Paul's story of conversion is an amazing account, isn't it? But so is all of us. The very fact that we believe in Jesus Christ is a testimony to God being at work. And and our testimony 
how we became a follower of Jesus is a wonderful proof of the gospel. Now, some of you may think, and I hear this a lot, my testimony is boring. I haven't really got a testimony like Paul's. Here's what I would answer to that, that, that worry. Your testimony is not about you. Here's your testimony. Jesus Christ has died for my sins. He has risen from the dead. And he's called me to follow him by his grace. That's, that's, that is your testimony. It's not really about you. Yes, it's amazing when God does these things like he does with Paul. But if you are following Jesus Christ, that is a miracle of divine intervention. In your testimony, don't worry about how interesting it is. Tell them about how wonderful he is. It's all by his grace. The fact that you are a Christian at all is an amazing testimony of God being at work. Well, in verse 18, let's move on. Paul moves on to another proof that his gospel was not of human origin, but of divine revelation. The second proof is this, the absence of the apostles. So first of all, he focuses on the experience of his conversion, and then he goes in verses 18 to 24 to effectively give an alibi to show that he didn't receive the gospel from the apostles. In fact, he goes on to say he was pretty much isolated from them completely. However, in verse 18, Paul does admit he meets an apostle. He does meet one. Interestingly, he mentions that it was three years after his conversion that he went up to Jerusalem. Now, some believe that, that it was three years because in Arabia, he was personally uh, being taught by Jesus, like the other apostles were three years with Jesus. It's conjecture, but interesting nonetheless. But the point is, three years in Arabia, no apostles. But after three years, he goes to see Cephas, who's another name for Peter. Peter's um, name in Aramaic is Cephas. And the reason Paul went to meet Peter, it says, in verse 18, was to get acquainted with him. That means he wanted to learn about Peter. He wanted to get to know Peter. He didn't go to Peter to receive the gospel from him. He'd already received the gospel from Jesus. He went to Peter to get acquainted with him. Now, there is no doubt that while Paul was with Peter for three weeks, he would have, uh, or for, two, for 14 days, sorry, he would have asked Peter about what happened when Peter was with Jesus. I mean, it'd be weird, wouldn't it, if he, if he didn't. But he did not go to find out what the gospel was. He didn't go there as a pupil to his teacher, but as one apostle to another. And he was there for just over two weeks. And two weeks is not enough time for Paul to learn all that Paul would go on to write in his epistles. I mean, can you imagine developing the kind of theology Paul writes in the book of Romans and Ephesians by spending 15 days with Peter? I mean, it's ridiculous. That's kind of what he's saying here. I was with him for, for two weeks because I wanted to get to know him and probably I would have you know, talked to him about what his experience with Jesus was like and I could explain what my experience with Jesus was like. I was not receiving the gospel from him. Uh, in verse 19 we read how he didn't see any other apostles. He only saw James, who wasn't the apostle James, the son of Zebedee, but was the Lord's brother. Uh, James was, was not a follower of Jesus until after the resurrection. He became a, a leader in the church at Jerusalem. He was probably the author of the letter that bears his name. 
Paul probably got more information about Jesus from James, maybe what it was like growing up with Jesus, but he did not get the gospel from James. And in verse 20, Paul points out he's not lying. He's trustworthy. He wants the Galatians to know what I'm saying is true. Please believe me. He did not receive the gospel from the apostles. Now, can you see how, how, how eager Paul is to point out the gospel is not of human origin. It's not from Peter or James or any other apostle. I received this from divine revelation. And in the last couple of verses here, he's, he continues his account of where he was post-conversion. In verse 21, he goes to Syria and Cilicia. Why does he mention there? No apostles in Syria or Cilicia. He wasn't even known in the churches in Judea, or at least known personally. Those churches may have been planted or influenced by other apostles, but they never met Paul. He never visited those churches. It's like he's saying, I avoided all the apostles. I never saw them. What he's doing is he's giving every possible biographical argument against the notion that he learned this gospel from any other source apart from the mouth of our Lord Jesus Christ. The churches in Judea may not have met Paul, but they had heard of him. Notice what they say. They heard the report in verse 23. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. They never met him, but they'd heard that he was converted and it caused them to praise God. That's amazing, by the way, just as a, 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 a kind of a side point. Paul organized the murder of these Christians. Perhaps even individuals in these congregations had had family members murdered by Paul. And here they are praising God that Paul had been forgiven and converted. Isn't that astonishing? And it begs the question, is there anyone who becomes a Christian that you can't rejoice over? Is there anyone who's a member of this church that you look at and think, oh, I wish they weren't here? These brothers worship the one that was going to kill them. But the main point here is that whilst the apostles did not give Paul his gospel... The churches, including no doubt some of the apostles, did praise God for the work God had done in Paul's life. Let me summarize like this. What we're seeing here is that we can trust the gospel that Paul is proclaiming. Because we can trust Paul. He did not receive the gospel of, by human origin, but by revelation from Jesus Christ. Paul is not a hoax, and we can be certain that his gospel is not a hoax either. Brothers and sisters, if you've forgotten anything else that I've said tonight, hear this. The gospel is true, okay? The gospel is true. If you forget everything else, remember this. The gospel is true. All that Paul writes about in Galatians, all that Paul writes about in the rest of the New Testament is true. 
Jesus has given himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. That is true. The real hoaxer is the devil who plants lies in our minds and says things like, you can't be forgiven of that. Or, it's too hard following Jesus. Or, sin doesn't matter too much. Or, I'm not that bad. Or any other million hoaxes that are every bit as fake as the paper fairies and manufactured skeletons. Don't believe it. The gospel is true. So my encouragement to you this week is this. Have confidence in the gospel. Believe it. And if you have confidence that it's true, then you can confidently, confidently live it out. Don't desert the gospel that's true for a gospel that's no gospel at all. Believe the true gospel, the wonderful gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel that a moment ago we were singing about, about the amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. The gospel that says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The gospel that frees us from the chains that once held us. Why go elsewhere to a false gospel when this wonderful gospel is actually true? Brothers and sisters, believe it's true. Follow Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Deliver us from hoaxes. Deliver us from things which are false gospels. Deliver us from evil. Help us to believe the gospel is actually true. Help us to live as though the gospel is actually true, because it is. We thank you for Paul the Apostle for his wonderful conversion. We thank you that we can have confidence that when he was writing these words, he was writing the very words of God. And so help us to obey the words that Paul has written, your words. Help us to believe the gospel in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to close with a song which sings of all of our testimonies. Uh, in fact, if you want to ask uh, someone what is your testimony, uh, they could just give you the words to this song, and it would be your testimony. The song is Grace Unmeasured, Fast and Free. Let's stand together and sing of the wonderful grace of our Lord Jesus Christ.
Hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. is all I need. This is all I 